0: And if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. Last week, we closed out the first of two oracles that finish the book of Zechariah. In chapters nine, 10, and 11, God dealt with Israel and the nations. This was this oracle or this burden that promised judgment uh, and we saw that come kind of historically through the life of Alexander the Great as he comes conquering down the Mediterranean coast there. And it also promised deliverance, this, this king that would come in humility like no other king had before. And we saw that in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We saw the promise of the good shepherd who's going to lead his people, who's going to provide for his people, who's going to protect his people. And we saw that the good shepherd is also going to gather his people. And so it, it implies that there is a scattering yet to come. That's because in chapter 11, we saw that the good shepherd is not only presented to his people, but the good shepherd winds up being rejected by the people that he came to save. And that rejection of the good shepherd has terrible consequences for the flock. Zechariah becomes this living kind of sermon illustration as he's called by God to shepherd a flock that is doomed to slaughter. And as the good shepherd is rejected, Zechariah breaks his staffs of unity and a blessing. We see the people lose the blessing, the beauty, and the bonding together that should come from being under the ministry of the Good Shepherd. And not only that, Zechariah looks out toward the future and he sees that as they reject the good shepherd, there's a time coming when this doomed flock is going to actually embrace one who is a terrible, wretched shepherd, one who's the antithesis, the opposite of everything that the good shepherd was promised to be. But even that wicked shepherd, even that morally despicable, failed shepherd, although he is going to come and oppress the flock of God for a time, even he falls under the sovereign authority of God. And in the end... God has promised to redeem his people. And today we're going to move into the final oracle of the book. It covers chapters 12, 13, and 14. And we're going to be in chapters 12 and 13 today. And once again, we're looking toward the future. And this time we're going to look at this in light of Israel as a rescued and refined people. Israel rescued out of a time of physical trouble. But more than that, Israel refined spiritually as a nation. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter 12. I'm going to read the first few verses to set the stage for where we're going. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we come before your word, and we recognize that it is not the word of men, it is not stories and fables and collections of good ideas and noble thoughts. Lord, what we hold in our hands is the very word of God, inspired, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, superintending every word, every thought. And so, Lord, we have something before us that is not only true, but is authoritative. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, help us to see, to rightly understand your truth. And, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be content simply to know truth, but that you would move us through the power of your Spirit toward obeying that truth. Lord, help us to live in light of our salvation. Help us to live in light of your authority in our lives. Lord, help us to live in light of the fact that you are coming again. And we need your help to do all of these things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, uh, we have lots of ways of measuring power. I was watching the football playoffs before my Miami Dolphins were unceremoniously dispatched. And and it's amazing. They can tell you before a player kind of makes the play how fast they're moving down the field and based on their size and their weight, how hard they're going to hit another person. And and in sports, we measure power uh, by how hard you can hit the ball or how hard you can hit uh, the poor Dolphins quarterback. Um, In politics, we measure power by how much influence you have on people or how much influence you have on policy. In business, it's how much money or how many employees you have control over. Uh, But of course, with all human power, uh, it only goes so far. There's an outer limit to the expression of every measurement of human power Uh, no matter how hard you hit the ball it only goes so far Uh, no matter how big the business grows you only have so much money and so much reach no matter how powerful your office is the office only lasts for a particular period of time and yet over and over in the bible we are faced with the power of a god who has infinite ability who is perfect in all of his attributes, who is unmatched and really unimaginable in the scope of his knowledge and of his power, and that nothing can thwart his will. Uh, Not national rebellion, not rejection, not the failure of his people, not the sins of the world, not the hatred of the nations. Nothing uh, can kind of disrupt or thwart the power of this God that we serve. And that is so important, because what we see in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is one of the most comprehensive looks at what is coming in the end of days in all of Scripture. This is one of the most critical passages in your whole Bible when it comes to understanding what is going to come for the nations and in particular for the nation of Israel. Uh, this, is, this has a scope and a depth that very few other places do. And we got to understand some things about this portion. There are some things that bind this oracle together, that set it all in one time frame. Uh, in particular, it's the idea that that phrase, in that day... 16 times in three chapters in that day in that day in that day it is not talking about the natural sequence of human events over long centuries it is pointing toward a very specific time period and that time period binds all three of these chapters together jerusalem also ties these chapters together 22 times in three chapters we see jerusalem the city and the people that it represents are critical to understanding what's going on here And then the idea of the nations or all the peoples. Thirteen times in these three chapters, the nations or the peoples are mentioned. But that shouldn't surprise us. Because from the beginning of the Minor Prophets, what we've seen about in that day, in the day of the Lord, is that it revolves heavily around two people groups. One is the nations and how God deals with the nations. And the other is the nation of Israel and how God will deal with his people. It's been a consistent message through the minor prophets. Those two groups are at the heart of the purposes of the day of the Lord. This is God's dealings with his people and his place in his city and God's dealings with the nations that surround and oppose and often confront his people. And so today uh, we're going to open that up and we're going to see Israel, like I said, rescued and refined. And we're going to open up chapter 12 first and focus on the power of the God who is going to rescue his people. This is the Lord who rescues his people. And the opening verses of chapter 12 really highlight the power of God to save. If you're going to save your people, you've got to be powerful enough to do it. And that's exactly what we read. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Very similar opening to chapter 9. Only in chapter 9, the burden of the oracle fell on the nations. Here in chapter 12, we see the burden or the oracle of the word of the Lord now is concerning Israel. That is a particular focus. And thus declares the Lord. The one who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him before he gets into the details of what is coming the lord reminds his people of his ultimate power this is the lord who stretches out the heavens from the farthest distance that you can see or imagine it is the lord who has sovereign control over stars and planets and galaxies And this is also the Lord who established the foundations of the earth, the place that you stand on, the broadest pillars that rests under all of humanity. And this is the Lord who formed the spirit of man within him. This is not only the Lord who created the heavens distant, the earth close, this is the Lord who created mankind himself. And one really cool thing, I think, about the grammar here, if you find grammar cool like I do, uh, if you have the NIV or the NASB, you'll notice that in your translation, uh, these are translated as present tense. They're kind of ongoing things. I think that is probably the best way to express the participle. In other words, what he's saying here is not that this is the God who long ago and far away stretched out the heavens and then left. This is not the God who established the earth and then watch to see what would happen. This is not the God who formed man and then left him to his own devices. This is the God who is continually and constantly active in all of those things. Maybe you remember the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says the same thing about Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1.3, he says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, continually upholding the creation that he has made. That is what the author is saying here. That's what Zechariah is saying. This is the God who did stretch out the heavens and continually oversees those heavens. This is the God who established the foundations of the earth and continuously monitors what is happening on the earth. This is the God who formed man and continually oversees the thoughts, the intentions, the rise and the fall of the nations of mankind. In other words, before the people receive this oracle, which has some remarkable promises, some of them very, very wonderful, some of them very, very difficult, what needs to be ringing in their mind is the power of the God who is speaking to them. This is the God who has absolute, complete authority and sovereign control over everything that is going on in his creation. And then the next portion of this chapter is how God is going to demonstrate that power. He's got the power to save, to uphold his people, and he's going to do that by striking the nations. This is the God with the power to strike against his enemies, and the enemies are really struck. This striking kind of comes in two forms. There's going to be references in here to God directly intervening, to God directly striking the people. And then there's going to be references in here to God empowering his people to do the striking, to work in his strength on his behalf. Those two things are not in conflict. They work in cooperation. There are times when God's direct intervention is unmistakable, and then there are going to be times in this day of the Lord period where God empowers his people to act with his strength. Look at verse 2. God says, "...behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples, and the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah." what we have here is this prophecy that deals with a coming siege of jerusalem only this one's going to be different than what's come in the past this isn't assyria and this isn't babylon this isn't uh the medes or the persians this isn't greece and this isn't rome but when we look at what's happening in this particular siege it is much more comprehensive in scope verse four says that this is uh all the nations that are going to come against them i'm sorry verse three is going to say this is all the nations that are going to come against jerusalem chapter 14 opens the same way Uh, This isn't one people group that comes against Jerusalem. This is talking about a time when the nations of the earth are gathered in a united hatred against God's people with this kind of desire to wipe them off the face of the earth once and for all. And again, we have to recognize that there are varying positions here. There are good and godly men and women who hold to the fact that this is something other than a literal invasion of Israel. They would see that this represents the strife and antagonism against the church throughout the ages uh, that has experienced hatred and persecution and rejection uh, in every place at every time. Uh, But again, the context makes that position very, very difficult to hold. Uh, There's never been a distinction in the church like there is here, Judah and Jerusalem talking about a people and a place. You have to deal with the fact that Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation all talk about a very similar event, an event described the same way, an event described with God's direct intervention to preserve out of the middle of that. Now, does God defend his people in times of persecution? Does he deliver them from times of persecution? Sometimes, often, he simply gives them the strength to honor him to give him glory even as they suffer. But, But this is talking about a time when an attack comes to a particular city in a particular region and has this unmistakable outcome. He says, Jerusalem becomes a cup of staggering to all the nations. What does that mean? It means that when they come against Jerusalem, they walk away reeling like drunkards, like they've been hit with something more powerful than them. It sends them away staggering. He says, on that day, again, not a general time frame, speaking of a very specific time period, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Again, it's all the nations gathered against Jerusalem, but what they seek to overcome, they find is too heavy for them, and it ends up hurting them. Guys, we've all tried to lift something that's too heavy for us, and we remember the next day that we're not strong enough to do that. It's all the nations thinking that in their gathered might, they will surely be able to overcome Jerusalem, this tiny fragment of people that are left. And in that day, they're going to find that Jerusalem is too heavy for them and that it wounds them. And here, we're going to see some of the direct intervention of God. He says, "'On that day,' declares the Lord, "'I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness.'" but for the sake of the house of judah i will keep my eyes open when i strike every horse of the peoples with blindness so so god strikes the horse and the riders with panic and blindness and we kind of say that sounds interesting but you have to recognize that doesn't come out of nowhere Uh, that's not a brand new thing if you were to go back to leviticus like we had we saw those promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience you remember that there's a very, very similar passage at the end of Deuteronomy, right before the people go into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, once again, the Lord says that if the people are obedient, he'll bless them. But if they're disobedient, he's going to discipline them. And this is how he phrases it in Deuteronomy 28:20. 20, he says, if you're disobedient, I will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake. In Deuteronomy 28:28, 28, 28, he says, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And now we read through here, and what do we see? We see that the Lord is taking those curses that He promised to His people, and He's now putting them on the nations that are coming against His people. And don't miss the contrast between blindness and sight here. What does God do to the people that are coming against Jerusalem? He strikes them with blindness, with confusion. But what does He say? He says, but I will keep my eyes open toward Jerusalem, toward Judah in that day. The peoples are struck with madness, with confusion, with blindness, but God is able to see perfectly, to orchestrate perfectly what is going on. And at that day, at that time, the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. This is a people whose minds have been changed. It's a people who no longer see their security and their safety as coming from their own strength and their own power. Now they look at the situation and they say, this was obviously God who made this happen. There's no way to discount the fact that God alone was able to deliver them from this. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are given strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day... I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all of the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem now becomes not only a stone too heavy to lift, now the picture is that it's a consuming fire like this blazing pot broken in the middle of kindling. It's going to consume the nations that come against them. And you have to understand how really unimaginable that is. The gathered might of all the nations, from a human perspective, should have no problem overcoming the gathered remnants of whatever force is left of the people of God. And yet, God gives them strength and delivers them in that day to where they are given the strength to consume their enemies. And verse 7, the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David, And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. It's this comprehensive picture of what the Lord is going to do. On that day, he says, I'm going to protect the people. On that day, the Lord strikes the people with blindness, with madness, with confusion. But on that day, this is where we see the other side of that. He also empowers his people to carry out his work with his strength. On that day, the Lord is going to make even the weak strong. Even the weakest among them, he says, is going to be like the greatest warrior in Israel's history, David. And what do we know of David? What are the Sunday school flannel graph stories that we know about David? From the time he was a boy, right? Killing bears and lions to protect the flock. Most famously, as he goes out and he slays the giant Goliath. And as he goes on in his fame and in his conquering career, uh, maybe you remember that song that the people of Israel began to sing, the one that really bothered Saul, because Saul has slain his thousands, but David his what? Ten thousands. And what's God saying? In that day, the weakest among you, the most sickly, the most frail, the most vulnerable from a human perspective will be given the strength to fight like the mightiest warrior in Israel's history. And the house of David, like the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord that went before them in exile, that defended, that lit their way, that consumed their enemies. In other words, what you see is a people who are now empowered by God to do his work. A people who are enabled by God to destroy those who seek to destroy them. And so far, what we've seen in this oracle, it talks about the physical deliverance, the physical rescue of God's people Israel. Jerusalem surrounded by all the nations, nations that seek to destroy them, nations that seek to put an end to this particular people once and for all. But in that coming day, the Lord himself is going to fight on behalf of his people. He's going to strike the nations with curses. He's going to blind and confuse, and he is also going to empower his people to fight with his strength. But again, we have to step back. What have we seen over and over through the Minor Prophets? That the physical rescue of Israel hinges on what? The Spiritual rescue of Israel. The physical restoration of Israel is never separated from the spiritual restoration of Israel. And the rest of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 are directed toward that coming reality. This is not only the God who rescues his people. This is the God who's going to refine his people. This is the God who's going to purify his people. This is the God who's going to take an unclean, unredeemed people and purify them and cleanse them once and for all. And the first part of that refining process uh, might not be what we would expect because the first part of this refining process isn't Uh, the picture of joy and victory. The first part of this refining process involves the people being confronted by their sin. Really what carries on here, and that we might miss because there's a chapter break and we stop reading, uh, what carries on here is this picture of blindness and sight. Remember, God strikes the enemies, the nations around them with blindness, with madness, with confusion. God himself keeps his eyes open toward his people. And now what we see in the rest of chapter 12 is the idea that God begins to open the eyes of his people. On that day, the Lord's Spirit is going to fall on his people, and their eyes are going to be open. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. The spiritual restoration of Israel brings amazing promises with it, Uh, wonderful promises of joy and provision and, and redemption. But the restoration of Israel begins with mourning. Because as the Lord pours out his spirit on his people, they are finally brought to clarity With regard to their Messiah when God opens his people's eyes the first thing they see is how far they have fallen in their rebellion when God gives them spiritual sight the first thing they see clearly is the Good Shepherd and the fact that they hated and rejected him this picture here it's Israel's national mourning cry to the Lord. That This is what happens when the spirit that Ezekiel promises in Ezekiel 36, 26, when God says that he will give them a new heart, that he'll put a new spirit within them, that he will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that rock-hard rejection gives way to the tenderness that comes with the ability to see and recognize and mourn and lament over their sin. And is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. That is not a new ministry. Even Jesus said that that's what the Spirit would do, that he would convict the world regarding sin. And when the Spirit is poured out on God's people, he convicts them greatly of their sin. The people of Israel now look to God and they see him. They see God as the one that they have pierced. And all of a sudden, those things that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53 are brought to immediate clarity. The things that the nation has stumbled over for thousands of years are now brought to crystal clarity as they see that Jesus Christ is the one, is the son, is the servant who was pierced for their transgressions, by whose stripes they were healed. And they look on him, and all of a sudden they know what they've done. You get just a glimpse of this in Acts as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Uh, The Jews are gathered from all over, and Peter preaches empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he says, this Jesus, who you crucified, he was the Messiah. He came, powers, wonders, he showed you who he was, and you killed him. And everyone out of that group that God called to himself, it says, was cut to the heart and they ask what they must do to be saved. They, they have that eye-opening, mourning response to what they had done to the Christ. This is the fulfillment of that glimpse in Acts chapter 2. This is a nation lamenting their rejection of their Savior. Not a fraction, but the national conversion of Israel. When Paul says, and all Israel will be saved, this is what he's drawing off of. Because when they recognize what they've done, they mourn, and it says like a parent faced with the death of their child." Not a hopeless mourning, that's not what it's saying, but the idea that they recognize that they have lost something precious. The idea that they have put to death something of immeasurable value. It's the right heart response to a recognition of who Christ is. It's the right heart response to the recognition of the tragedy of sin. It's the right heart response of a people that realized that they hated the one that came to save them. And look at the scope of that morning. Verse 11. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramom in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself, and their wives by themselves. It's a lot of mourning, it's a lot of by themselves. The nation as a whole, it says, weeps uh, like they did in the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. That's probably pointing to the time when Josiah was killed there and the nation mourned. Josiah was a good king, one of the few good kings over Judah. His rule brought a time of a spiritual restoration. And with that spiritual restoration brought national safety and national security and blessing and prosperity. And then Josiah went to fight in a battle that God told him not to, And in his rebellion, he was struck down in that battle. And the people recognized what they had lost and they mourned bitterly for him. It's like that. The people recognized the bitter loss that they've encountered. And then you go through all of this mourning by themselves and by themselves. And what you begin to see is that this kind of mourning is different than all the national feasts and festivals that they had had. Israel had a lot of good looking mourning. Uh, They knew how to hire mourners to take their place at the funeral. They knew what it was to wail over the loss, and they paid people to do it. They knew what it was to come together for solemn feasts and solemn assemblies. Uh, They knew what it was to celebrate the Day of Atonement, which was a solemn, serious national day that dealt with sin. And they knew how to make all that look good on the outside, but it never touched their heart. Uh, This is going to be different. We see that this drives the people to individual mourning, even husbands and wives brought to the point where they mourn separately. That's appropriate because although this describes the salvation of a nation, salvation is applied individually. No one is saved because mom and dad have a right relationship with Christ. No one is grandfathered into the kingdom. This must be individually applied. This repentance, this sorrow must be individually applied to each person. And that's exactly what we see, that each individual comes to this same recognition and this same level of repentance. But that repentance characterizes the entire nation. David, his descendant Nathan, the idea that even the ruling class, the kings, the important ones, the nobles, will recognize and mourn. Levi and the Shimeites, his descendants, the idea that even the priestly caste, even the religious, will recognize and repent. And anyone that's left, all the families that are left, this is a huge statement, everyone left will mourn. And so all Israel, corporately, And all Israel individually, from the powerful to the religious to the common, they all look at the one that they have pierced, they recognize who he was, and they mourn for their failure. And then chapter 13 carries on with the cleansing that comes from that not only are they confronted with their sin but they're cleansed from their sin look at chapter 13 verse 1 on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness morning is good <laughs> right sorrow over sin is necessary but mourning isn't enough when you discipline your child Being sorry about the consequences isn't enough, is it? There has to be a heart recognition of the depths of sin. But here we get that promise that there is also going to be a washing, this cleansing from sin. It's not sorrow that doesn't lead anywhere, it's not mourning that goes to waste, it's a repentance that leads to a fountain of cleansing like water that washes away the filth of a stain, there's a fountain that is going to be opened to cleanse and wash the people. And we sing about the cleansing work of the blood of Christ, don't we? That is what the blood of Christ does. It cleanses, it washes, it purifies from sin. It takes what was filthy and makes it white like snow. And Amazingly, what we see here is that that cleansing that has gone out to the nations through the gospel proclamation is finally and fully applied to the people that it was promised to first. And repentance is part of that progression. See, we would expect a progression here: that that recognition of sin brings in mourning over sin; that mourning over sin brings repentance; that repentance leads to forgiveness. And then we would expect that forgiveness leads to a changed life, and that's exactly what we see. Look at verse 2. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they will be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. And on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He'll not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He'll say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. See, idolatry has historically been a major problem for the people. We've seen warnings against that. We've seen the consequences for that. Now, after the exile to Babylon, we never really again see a national movement toward idolatry in Israel. Uh, But two things with regard to that. First of all, not all idolatry is external and sitting on the shelf, right? An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Israel never put away their heart idols, just like you and I continue to struggle with heart idols. We might have idols that look like money, power, relationships, Fame, influence, security, comfort, peace can be an idol. And second, there's the reality that in the last days, idolatry is a major part of the world system that is put into place. But whether these are internal or external idols, God is going to do away with all of them. He is finally going to purge all of the false worship of Israel. And by the way, that is exactly what was promised in the visions that we talked about in the beginning of the book. And in addition to to purging them of all their failed uh, worship through idolatry, uh, he's also going to purge the plague of false prophecy. And those two things go together. False worship always brings along false messengers that proclaim uh, that false worship. And just like the idols, the false prophets are going to be dealt with. He's going to remove them from the land, all the prophets in the spirit of uncleanness. And the rejection of that false prophecy is going to go so far that the parents are going to be willing to deal with it amongst their children that a father and mother if they recognize that their child is engaged in this will take the steps necessary to purify their land out of their love and devotion for god Uh, now parenthood tests your convictions you may very well have a theological conviction of what is true until your child begins living in a way that is alternate to that and then watch how many people begin to make excuses on that day in this coming day God will so refine the hearts of his people that their allegiance to God surpasses even their family allegiances. And again, this is not anything new. Christ says the same thing. To love Christ might very well put you in conflict and even hatred with father or mother, brother or sister, parent to child, And it's not that loving Christ makes us hate other people. To love God is to love other people. But to love God, to love Christ, to pursue him with your whole heart is to set everything else aside for the sake of obedience and worship to him. And that's what we see coming to fruition in this day of the Lord. As the Lord purifies his people, he restores in their heart the desire to worship him and follow him, even though it costs them their very family relationships. And in that day, the false prophets themselves are going to be ashamed of what has happened. They are no longer going to put on hairy cloaks and kind of make this outward profession of uh, their prophetic office. Now they're going to try and hide. Now they're going to say that they have been farmers from the beginning, that they were uh, sold into slavery, so they've been working the land the whole time. And if someone says, what are these wounds on your back? Uh, Likely referring to what are these wounds that were inflicted uh, from that uh, idolatrous worship that often involves self-harm to get the God's attention? Then they'll be forced to say, I know it was just the wounds I received in the house of a friend. No longer are false prophets going to be put on a pedestal and no longer are they going to seek fame. Now they will be put to death and they will hide if at all possible. But how is any of this possible? What causes the people to mourn? What opens that fountain of cleansing? What enables the change of heart? What's the root cause of this refinement? Look at verse 7 awake O sword against my shepherd against the man who stands next to me declares the lord of hosts strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered i will turn my hand against the little ones now that should sound familiar it's quoted by jesus in matthew 26 where he tells the disciples that on this night all of you are going to fall away it is where peter says nope all these clowns might do that not me i'm with you to the end and jesus says you're not even gonna make it till sunrise And we see that what he says comes to pass. And of course, that makes sense within our immediate context. The good shepherd presented and rejected in chapters 10 and 11 is now spoken of again. We have a time when the good shepherd is rejected and when he is struck, the sheep are scattered. And it might kind of seem out of order, out of place, but Zechariah is doing exactly what he did in chapter 9. He said, here's a king coming to judge and you have Alexander who comes and he does God's work, but he's not the kind of king that the people need. And now you have these prophets Presented these false prophets, but here they're set in contrast with the work of the good shepherd. The false prophet receives his wounds in rebellion and disobedience. The Messiah receives his wounds in obedience to the Father. This is his shepherd who does his work. And when the Lord strikes his shepherd, when the Son goes to the cross, when the Messiah is pierced, it's his piercing that the people mourn, it's his blood that opens the fountain of cleansing. It's his spirit that he sends to be the one who convicts of sin and enable obedience. And so the underlying reason, the cause behind all of this, of course, is the work of Christ. But there's also a physical driver to the repentance, to the restoration, to the refining of the people. There's a cause that God brings on. Look at what he says. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one third shall be left alive. Now, what he's talking about here is a time of great difficulty because remember, the day of the Lord focuses on Israel and on the nations. And one aspect of the day of the Lord is that the day of the Lord brings salvation to his people, and then we also see that salvation extended to the nations. But the other half of that day of the Lord is that it's a time of clarity of who God is because it is the time when a holy God comes in judgment against sin, and he judges the nations that rebel against him and that exercise hatred toward his people. But a part of the day of the Lord, a significant part of the day of the Lord, is that he is also going to judge and discipline his people greatly. There is a reason that Jeremiah calls this time, this day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble. There is a reason that Joel says this is a day of darkness and gloom. There's a reason that when Amos writes, maybe you remember, he said, why are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? This is not going to be a day of light to you. This is going to be a day of darkness and trouble for you. And Zechariah picks up on that thought. The whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds are going to be cut off and perish, and one-third will be left alive. The rejection of the people is going to have a great and terrible cost. The judgment of the Lord is coming on the nations, but it is also coming on His people. The difference is the judgment of the Lord is not coming on His people for their destruction. He is going to leave some alive. He is going to preserve a remnant, that idea of the remnant that he has promised all the way through the minor prophets. He is going to preserve that remnant. And what is he going to do with them? Verse 9, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And then they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Out of this judgment comes a refined and purified people. They are purified by the blood of the perfect lamb. They are purified by the fire of discipline. They are refined so that finally, for the first time in their national history, the people of Israel are able to worship in spirit and in truth. And once again, that's a lot to get through. This <laughs> is a heavy section with a lot of cross-referencing and a heavy emphasis on what's coming in the end. But at the heart of all of this, What we see most clearly on display, I think, is the grace and the mercy of God. Because you got to come to this point and you say, why Israel? (laughs) After everything that's happened, why save Israel? God brings them out of slavery in Egypt and they complain about it. He brings them into the promised land and they rebel. He sends them the prophets and they ignore them. He sends them into exile and he brings them back and they don't change. He sends the Son, the Messiah, and they hate him and they crucify him. And for 2,000 years, they have remained locked in rebellion against their Messiah, stubbornly clinging to the fact that they can make themselves secure enough and holy enough on their own efforts. And why save a people like that? And I think that's why there's such a long history of people saying that the physical people failed and had to be replaced by a spiritual Israel. I think that that hardness is a part of why people struggle to see that God could have any kind of a plan for national Israel. I mean, that's not new. In the mid-100s A.D., Justin Martyr, in his writing to Trifo, a Jew says, "...but you Jews were never shown to be possessed of friendship or love toward God, or toward the prophets, or even toward yourselves." But as it is evident, you're ever found to be idolaters and murderers of righteous men so that you laid hands even on the Christ himself. And that leads him to say that we who are believing Gentiles have taken the place of Israel in those promises. The problem is he fails to see that God planned on and even promised the rejection of his people just like he promised the restoration of his people. And as Paul says in Romans 11, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Thank God, by the way, that they are because I'm not going to get through this week living faithful to my bonds of obedience to Christ. We're reminded through all of this that God does not save the powerful, the put together the good, that God saves wicked, wretched, lost sinners for his glory. That God is going to redeem the people that he has chosen from the beginning, not because they are good enough not because they clean themselves up, but because he is faithful. What do we do with that? Three things. First of all, uh, we should remember that covenant faithfulness, uh, that Abrahamic covenant, that God is going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse them, that God is faithful down to every detail of his promises. That is good news for us because God has made wonderful and precious promises to us, to his people, the church. Again, that he will meet our needs that he will complete the good work that he started in us, that he will bring us home safely at the end of all this, that he knows his sheep and that he calls them and that he gathers them finally before him. Those are good news. And why do we have any faith that God will do what he said when things seem really difficult? Well, because he's always done exactly what he says he will do. Second, there are times when recognizing failure is really important. When God opens our eyes, sometimes it's the real- to the reality that we have messed up. It's not popular. In fact, it's barely even acceptable in our culture. You can't use a red pen on a paper anymore when you're grading because it hurts feelings, right? And whatever you think about that, it is built into our culture that people don't need to hear the difficult things sometimes. If you remove the recognition of failure, you remove the need for the gospel. There are times when God will open our eyes, even those of us who are saved, to the fact that we have failed and fallen greatly. Understand this, that when God opens blind eyes to see sin, it is an act of mercy and grace. Because he's exposing something that harms our relationships with others, that alienates us from the God who saved us, and that prevents us from walking in a manner worthy of our calling. As God points out the sin in our lives, he calls us into a deeper level of Christ-likeness, which is ultimately for our eternal good. And finally... I can't get away from these sections without calling for you to respond to the shepherd. The shepherd came and was struck for the sins of his people. Israel bears a terrible cost for their rejection of the Messiah. You and I are faced with the same work of that good shepherd who came and died for the sins of his people who calls on every man, woman, and child on every continent and every country and every tribe and tongue and nation to respond to that one saving gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that you bear the guilt of your sin before a holy God unless someone stands in your place. Do not walk out of this room. Do not turn off this recording. Do not go through the rest of your week without grappling seriously with the fact that when you stand before God, you will either plead your goodness which will fall short, or the goodness of Christ, which is the only merit for being in the presence of God forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that reminds us of your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that promises that you alone provide the means of salvation. Thank you for your word that promises that you are faithful to every promise that you have ever made. And so Lord, it is not a divided people that are called to you. It is a people that are redeemed and restored by the blood of Christ. We will see that good promise played out in the lives of Israel. And Lord, for now, you have seen fit to call us Gentiles who were not a people, your people. What a remarkable thing that you grafted us into those promises. And when we're faced with all of those, Lord, what can we say but, oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God? How unsearchable are your judgments? No one can fathom your ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has given you any counsel? for from you and through you and to you are all things. And Lord, on that day when we stand before you, it will be to the praise of your glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.